Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough. My co-host, the one and only Man One, is still on assignment, so uh, you're still stuck with me, like it or not. Listen, artists who are willing to put themselves in harm's way for the sake of their work are a rare breed, and the artists who use their work to help others are perhaps even more rare. Well, on today's episode, we're joined by Brian McCarty, who is one of these rare artists. Since 2011, Brian has been collaborating with the UN and other NGOs in active war zones to help children traumatized by war. Through his project War Toys, Brian McCarty uses the power of children's toys, free play, and his digital camera to help these children process their pain. He's worked in Iraq, Syria, Israel, the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and Lebanon. My conversation today with Brian is a special one, so be sure to stay tuned. Now, before we get into it, uh, I want to thank you all for tuning in. We're here for you. We couldn't do it without you. We do it for you. So when you tune in, it means the world to us. So thank you. Uh, of course, be sure to like and share this episode and subscribe to the show. We always have world-class creatives who are top in their field sharing their invaluable experience and advice. You definitely don't want to miss out. And by subscribing, you'll get notified and you won't miss out on the good stuff. Also, I want to encourage you to go to the website, notrealart.com, and sign up for our newsletter. This will also help you stay informed about all the cool stuff we do for artists and art lovers. By going to our website, you can get access to really great free educational videos. You can sign up for artist grants to win 2000 bucks. You can buy affordable original contemporary art through our partnership with Sugar Press. And if you want, you can even support us through Patreon. So be sure to check it out. Now, like I was saying, Brian McCarty is a really special artist and his work is really powerful, compelling. I was so grateful for him to come onto the show and was so moved by the talk. So Without further ado, let's get into this. Let's hear from the one and only Brian McCarty. Brian McCarty, welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Man, it's great to be here. Have you been on a podcast before? I've not been on a podcast before, so I think you are my first. Wow. Wow. Well, it's an honor. And you listen to podcasts. Let's start there. 
I do, but not super often. Like since gyms have been closed, that was sort of my prime podcast time. And without that, uh, yeah. Right, right. What did you listen to when you were, you know, at the gym? Oh, God. Random, random, random stuff. Friends were forever feeding me new feeds and new whatever, and I sadly never got to yours, so I'm a little embarrassed for that. <laughs> I don't even get to mine, man. Don't even worry about it. No, I mean, that's the that's the unfortunate thing. Well, it's a blessing and a curse in terms of the popularity of podcasts, because I think the last count I've heard up to 1.8 million podcasts. Holy crap. So good luck. I mean, you know, there's so much great stuff out there that we'll never hear. Yeah, absolutely. But it's great to be in a renaissance of what is essentially radio. The democratization. That's right. That's right. There's a lot of controversy now within the podcast community because, of course, like, you know, so many of these things go, these like, you know, life cycle of a business or an industry. Now it's maturing a bit and the big money's coming and there's a lot of consolidation going on. And so the purists in the podcast industry will tell you that if it's behind a paywall, it's not a podcast. A podcast is meant mm. to be free, right. it's meant to be democratic and accessible. So it's interesting to see how, because you mentioned it as a radio show, as radio, it is basically radio. And I think, you know, companies like Spotify and what have you, they're realizing, oh, wait a minute, this is great content. But I do love the accessibility and how it doesn't have to be dominated by large companies. And it can just be put out by, you know, someone in a room and still make great content. So, Brian, enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? No, (laughs) I have to ask you, man, like why toys? I mean, you went to Parsons. What did you do? You study photography at Parsons? I did. Yeah, I went. I actually skipped a year of high school to get to Parsons Mm -hmm. faster. (laughs) Good for you. Straight into photography as my major. And Mm -hmm. so I knew, you know, exactly why I wanted to do. But for as for why toys, I mean, the short, simple answer is that I got serious about photography around age 12. You know, I had my mom's old Yashiga Matt camera and just experimented. And she was nice enough to, like, you know, pay for a roll or two of Walgreens process coding. Well, thanks, mom. Every once thanks in a while. Mom. Yeah. And, you know, at that age, toys were a natural choice of subject. I mean, I had plenty of them and they were around. And I was always a little introverted, geeky kid anyway and didn't want to impose on anyone when I was doing my sure. experimentation. And so that's just kind of what it was. And all through high school and art school and my career since, that has just been what I wanted to do. So when you were a kid with a camera, what were you shooting? I do like my GI Joes and Transformers and that kind of stuff. Oh, so you started back then with toys even. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, it was always just, that was a natural choice. And I did, you know, at first it was like emulating the commercials and cartoons and little bits of anime that made it to Memphis, Tennessee with my photography. But, you know, as time went on, I'd build more like these sort of narrative tableaus and sets and that kind of thing. And it just progressed from there. That's so great. So you're from Memphis? Yeah, born and raised. Excellent. I'm embarrassed and ashamed to say I've never been to Memphis. In spite of being to Tennessee many times, usually Nashville, my sister used to live in Franklin. Oh, yeah. But I've never made it to Memphis. I mean, I'm from Chicago uh, land originally. I grew up in the Midwest. And right. so driven by many times, uh, never been. Can't wait to go. Yeah, I mean, it's something to see. And it's changed so much since I left. But I mean, it's still home. My mom's still there and yeah. I get back yeah. you know, whenever I can. Right, right, right. I bet she's missing you now. When was the last time you were able to travel? Oh, God. The last trip, like proper trip I took was last December. And I was supposed to have been on the road for most of this year. So, you know, times have changed that, obviously. So one of the things that jumped out about your bio, and, you know, I have to commend you, right, because, you know, your bio is so compelling and engaging. I often ask the question, why do 
so many artist bios suck. It's a It's absolutely fair question. You know, the art is powerful. The artists are compelling. Mm-hmm. Why do their bios suck? Oh, but your bio was compelling on so many levels, but in part because there's one line in your bio that I've never read yet anyway in any other artist bio. And that is the phrase active war zones. Most artists I've known most likely have not been to an active war zone. Brian, tell us, what is it like to be in an active war zone? Like the first time, for sure, it was scary and foreign and surreal. And now, however many years into this, it's just surreal. I get scared after the fact, weirdly. But when you're in it, it's oddly normal. And it's just, you know, I like it in a weird way. I mean, I've kind of half jokingly, half serious said that I get the addiction of that type of work because those places you really see sort of the thin veneer of civilization. And you get these moments and these perspectives that you just couldn't find otherwise. And so like the story from my last trip, yeah, last trip to Iraq, one day Mosul, West Mosul, shooting their dead bodies, explosions, you know, kind of whatever you name it, or explosive hazards, I should say. The next day, one of my rare days off, I went to an international hotel, rented a spot by their pool and sat there and had drinks by the pool, listening to a techno version of Losing My Religion blaring over the loudspeakers. And just in that moment, you get this sort of, what the fuck? What is this the weirdest life, the weirdest existence you can possibly have? And that kind of feeling is addictive. And to get that sort of jarring, bizarre realities and sort of shoehorning together is really interesting. And yeah, I have to admit, I like it. I don't want to do it for the rest of my life. Right. Well, I've heard from in other interviews with soldiers or veterans and other maybe even wartime kind of uh, journalists that the adrenaline is quite addictive. I guess that's what you're saying. You're not scared till after the fact. That's probably when the adrenaline uh, dies down a little bit. And weirdly, though, I will claim, at least, that I'm not addicted to the adrenaline of being in actual combat situations, that sort of thing. And I, again, jokingly, but honestly say, if I end up on the front lines or in a really risky situation, it's because a mistake has been made. I don't seek out the front lines. It's not my job to go to those places. But mistakes have been made. (laughs) And I've, yeah, gotten some really bad close calls and that sort of thing. So, a little bit of adrenaline for sure, but it's just, again, the fear and that kind of stuff and why it happens later. I think it's because you're doing a job and you've you got something to do and you're in it. And mm. it's not real. Like the first time I got shot at, I laughed. I laughed because <laughs> it was just, it was like, why? I'm this idiot taking pictures of toys. Why are you shooting at me? It's just something in my brain couldn't connect. No, this guy's trying to kill you right now. Now, are you wearing Kevlar or are you, are you just, you're wearing your camera and your bag of toys and that's it? Yeah. And I even purposely like go, when I worked in East Mosul in 2017, when the West was still very much an active war zone, I would go and dress very purposely as civilians. So jeans, t-shirt, you know, nothing that looked remotely yeah. military, thinking that would protect me in some way. It, it didn't. I mean, the, the ISIS snipers were shooting at anything that moved. Men, women, children didn't matter. So it was a right, right. thing. But yeah, I should have had Kevlar, should have had a lot more protection than I did, and I just didn't. So right, it, right. it was only until last year that I finally got hostile environment training, and it's probably eight years too late, but I'm glad I did it. So how does a civilian art school graduate, you know, wake up one day and, okay, so you say, I want to do this project, I want to, I need to get to an active war zone, obviously I need to partner 
with, you know, maybe some other kind of NGO organizations, what have you. What is that process like? I mean, who do you call first? How the hell do you go from peacetime Memphis, Tennessee to Mosul as a civilian? What are Mm -hmm. those like? Who are you calling? How do you get that done? I mean, it was such a long road. The project actually started in 96 as a small study for an exhibition. And then it took about 15 years to grow and evolve into what it became. And the very first trip, which would have been that really jarring, like, I'm going to go try this kind of thing, only happened because of a friend. I was out on a walk with a good friend, Paul Vester, and his wife, Irene Kotlars. And Paul is a professor at CalArts. Both he and Irene are great friends. And I just published my first book. It was like 2009, 2010. And he was asking, so what are you going to do? What's next? I said, well, I've had this thing. I started in 96. And I really want to kind of dust it off and develop it into this thing where basically kids are art directing my work and, you know, telling the stories of war. And I thought he was going to just think I was crazy, you know, like, well, what are you thinking? And instead he said, you got to do this. You got to do this. And oh, by the way, my family's connected to an NGO in East Jerusalem. Let me make some calls. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. So even with him having these strong connections and even with, you know, that personal introduction, it still took a year to convince the center to open their doors to me because, you know, at that point, yeah, my career is pretty okay. I've had some press. I'm not unknown, but I'm still this guy that these people don't know saying, hi, I take pictures of toys and can I get access to your traumatized kids? Right. You know, they're not going right. to do that. And so they finally, you know, said yes and off I went. And it just kind of has grown ever since. Like every trip, meet more people, meet more contacts. The media attention that's come from the work has opened up a lot of doors. And it's just... Yeah, it's kind of networking 101 and having the will to keep pushing it forward. Yeah. Well, and what do you think? Because there is certainly a risk, right? If people aren't really listening and paying attention to what you're saying, Mm -hmm. that they may quickly judge your work as trite, right? It's like, right. So what is it about your, dare I say, pitch? What is it about the, what aspect of the project do you think finally hooks them and resonates with them and say, no, 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 this is absolutely the opposite of tried. This is important, powerful catharsis, maybe even right for these kids. Like, so talk a little bit about that. What is that spark? What is that moment where they realize they get it and they say, yes, mm-hmm. it's funny. The seeming absurdity of the work to me is the hook when people look at it and it does look trite and it does look stupid. And I'm this idiot going to war zones and taking pictures of toys. And those things I think are the beachhead into getting folks to actually look at it seriously. So that's, I rely on that. I I rely on this sort of seemingly innocuous, oh, it's a toy. I can relate to a toy. I can grab it to sneak around people's defenses. Like a weird mark of success is that, well, it makes a lot of people cry and it makes a lot of people cry that you wouldn't think otherwise. Like NGO workers, for example, or humanitarian workers, folks who are on the front lines and have seen just some horrible stuff. Even they, like working with Terdizam Italia, you know, the few people there said that, you know, they work with these kids day in and day out, the camps, they obviously are aware of some of the thing, these things, but they don't get an opportunity to look at their actual stories, to hear these things. There's no responsible way without an art therapist or another otherwise trained professional to interview these kids and learn these things. But again, going back to kind of the, the absurdity of the process and the absurdity of me doing what I do, it gets people to look and people who are into art will look at it from an art point of view and people who are into more pop culture-y, you know, things that are less serious, it'll grab them too. I've told the story a few times early, early on in the project. 
I think after my first trip to Gaza, I came back and CNN did a piece that was widely circulated. And from that, I think Huffington Post contacted me. And I was so flattered. I was like, oh, Huffington Post. Yeah, God, yeah. And they put the piece in the weird news section. And I was just devastated. I was pissed. And I you know, reached out to the editor and kind of ripped her face off and said, look, these are kids' examples of war. This is really serious. I know it looks goofy. I get that. But, ah, man, can we not have a weird news section? And she said, look, we knew you'd feel this way. That's why we didn't tell you. But here's the deal. Weird news gets, I'm making up a number here, but something like 10 times the viewership of the world section or the arts section Interesting. or Interesting. anything else. And said, yeah. look, you've got to understand, it, you know, it's an asset. It's a victory of your work that it can get seen in this context and looked right. at by people who just wouldn't think about this stuff. And so ever since then, I've checked my ego, my sort of artist with a capital A and my BFA <laughs> and all that, you know, like card yeah. and just said, look, that's, you know, I will look like a, just an idiot if it gets people to look at this and knock on wood has, and people have gotten it and connected in ways that I think they wouldn't otherwise. If you show some graphic image of a kid dying or some more of the actual reality, people turn away. They just literally metaphorically can't look at it, can't absorb it. And so they turn it off. This going in with the toys is so innocent seeming, at least at first that it grabs folks. And as soon as they really look at it and look at the drawings or read the accounts or anything, then it just, it's done its job. Yeah, they don't understand or appreciate the Trojan horse nature of the work and what you're doing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I ask in part because I, you know, well, A, that was just one of the things that jumped to mind, in part because of my own personal experience. I've done a lot of work in healthcare in terms of helping healthcare companies, you know, market or advertise their life-saving services. But doctors have often pushed back over the years and saying, why are we spending millions of dollars advertising, I'd rather buy a MRI machine. Mm -hmm. And that's a fair argument, right? And they're just trying to stop the bleeding. And here I'm trying to sell them, you know, some expensive TV spot or whatever. And it's right. like, no, 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 you can save the, the idea is that you would save more lives <laughs> with the ad. So anyway, so it, it's a challenge sometimes, right? Communicating the value of art or communication or so I just, yeah, I was wondering about that. So how then I'm guessing you tell me, but, you know, clearly your work isn't cheap and you've got to travel, you've got the logistical costs, you've got so many things. And I notice that you work with some of the toy manufacturers. Are they underwriting your work? What is your relationship with the toy manufacturers? I'm curious. I've been really lucky to have a career up until War Toys and in some ways overlapping with War Toys where I got to work with some really great companies, you know, mm -hmm. Disney. Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, Hasbro, those kinds of people. Sure. And none of them have underwritten the work directly, but I think unofficially at least have supported what I've been doing and are encouraging for it. And really my pattern had been for many years, I'd go do some big commercial job, turn around, take all that money and go do a war toys trip. And so Got I was it. zeroing out my bank account every time. And I'm sure, still essentially sure. doing that. That's great. So you have, right. So you have your commercial work subsidizing your fine art. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Now that, yeah, but my commercial work has really fallen by the wayside. I still enjoy it, but my heart's not in as much, obviously. And I'd love to keep doing board toys as much as possible, which is why I founded the nonprofit last year, hoping to get more of a financial base or more support to not have to worry about the commercial stuff, but we'll see. Yeah. Now tell me about the 501c3. So that finally formed last year. And I say finally only because I started War Toys or relaunched it in 2010, first trip 2011, and it took me to 2019 to finally pull the trigger 
and form a nonprofit. I just, I was resistant to it. I wasn't ready for it. But when the time finally came, it was the time. I'm incredibly lucky to have an amazing board of directors. I got folks from Sesame Street, Mattel, we got Disney Consumer Products. It goes on and on. And, you know, obviously our plans of the year drastically changed. We were meant to, well, we had programs developing Juarez, Greece, Iraq, and then we're starting to look at working at inner city U.S. as well. So Detroit, Memphis, those kinds of places, but clearly not now. And instead, though, have pivoted to another project that I'm crazy excited about working in the toy industry or working with the toy industry. So can you share? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I can kind of broad stroke it. I mean, we've had a board meeting last week and kind of debating when and how to release information because it's the project's pretty far along, but we've still got we're not going to think publicly launch it until Black Friday next year. Is what we're okay. Sure, sure, sure. But in the broad strokes, this started because traveling all places I travel, I have seen the exact same toys everywhere. Hmm. Without exaggeration, like what they have in Gaza is the exact same as Iraq, which is the exact same as the Albertsons in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Hmm. I mean, they are the cheap generic toys permeate around the world from very few sources in China. Yeah. And yeah. so I had this idea some years ago now of figuring out a way to influence those designs to harness the existing trade and generic toys and reach millions and millions of kids at just the cost of redesigning something. And, you know, so the sculpting, the tooling, that kind of stuff. In time, this project, I think we can improve the play patterns, accessibility, messaging, representation, all that kind of stuff on the lowest tier of toys. So giving kids at really every economic level, because rich kids buy shitty toys, too. I mean, Mm -hmm. you can buy Mm -hmm. army men everywhere. But we're really targeting the kids who don't have access to the Mattels and Hasbros and, and like really higher end stuff that is more educational and better. So what that equates to is a pilot project that we're launching, and it's setting really low bar. It's just inserting photojournalists into bags of army men, little photojournalist figures. And the idea is with doing that small, almost imperceptible change, you've altered the inherent play pattern. So it's not just two sides fighting each other anymore. You're promoting press freedoms. You're promoting gender equality, racial equality, because we have men and women. And you're giving just kids an alternative, alternate role models, different ways of thinking. And it's not saying this small change is going to be the thing that pushes us all toward peace, but it is a good start and a way to build the relationships with the retailers, the manufacturers, wholesalers, and so on and so on, so that we can get to those other product categories that we can do more good. But I'm excited for this. I mean, we've got the first prototype, which I would love to show you but you know, just kind of yeah, yeah, yeah i don't yeah. yeah i don't want you to have to kill me thank yeah, you please exactly but uh <laughs> no it's secret. got a great team and we've just you can be the first to know this we've just elected a new board member this woman named ashley powell uh who comes from toy manufacturing and production and is just amazing is really going to help us get this to the right level get the right folks avoid some pitfalls and make an impact that's great. That's great, man. Well, congratulations on setting that up. I mean, it's, I can relate to the, you know, I don't know, the kind of hand wringing about when to do it because it's work. I mean, it's a big deal. Like you got to mm-hmm. manage it, you know? Yeah. And we're relying on, for this thing to work, we need the retailers on board. We need the manufacturers on board. And so we're number one, trying to find changes that aren't too disruptive to the status quo, at least at first. No retailer, manufacturer, wholesaler is going to accept 
you know, toy sets that are these idolized, perfect, you know, pushing us all in a better direction because that's not what the market wants. And so we have to find those things that are subtle, still action-based, still integratable, and we'll wait to announce so that they can get the most value out of it so that their sales are good and so on and so on. So we're supporting them making money. Yeah, for sure. So out of every 10 toys that you found in active war zones around the world, how many of those 10 toys were toy guns? It depends on where. In some places, I'd say two out of 10, and some places higher. And the places where it's higher are paradoxically, at least to some folks, the more active war zones. But it makes sense to me. Kids, especially the ones who have been exposed to war, almost need to take control of that incredibly scary concept through their play. And so it's a way for them to mirror reality, to really take control over it and feel empowered and feel strong and feel that these things can't hurt them as much as they obviously can and do. So, yeah. But I mean, just about everywhere, it's all, it's, I've jokingly said that I find, like, finding civilian toys is the hardest thing ever in war zones. I can find soldiers. I can find baby dolls. I can find that kind of stuff. But just something that looks like a civilian, a family, whatever. So I've ended up having to buy the exact same dollhouse sets. I don't know. I can't even count how many times now just to get the little dollhouse family. And I've shot that same damn family (laughs) again and again because it's the same mold. It's the same the exact same toy. And even though it's different brands and different whatever, different colors, it's all the same toy. But, yeah. Point is that there are a lot of war toys in war zones. Yeah. I've never been to an active war zone. I have traveled in, you know, shall we say, developing countries. And it is amazing that what I've seen in terms of the ingenuity that kids have in terms of making play when there's nothing, literally nothing to play with. And your work reminded me on a certain level, forgive me if you don't agree with this particular analogy, but reminding me of Street Play by Martha Cooper. I don't know if you know that book, but Martha Cooper, do you know? Well, anyway, look it up. You'll love it. I'll send you the link. But Martha Cooper's an incredible photographer. But she, in the late 60s and 70s, spin up. She, I think she was a journalist for the New York Times, a photojournalist for the New York Times. And she was paying the bills with that. But then she became enamored with the kids living in the projects and how they would play and what they would play with. And they were making, you know, great fantasy and great worlds and great fun out of burnt out cars and spare tires and, you know, all this stuff. And so there's a very famous book, well, how famous it is. I love it, but it's called Street Play. And it's a compilation of all of her photography of these kids playing in really what looks like a war zone because it's the projects in the Bronx or whatever, Brooklyn in or Queens in New York during that time. So kids, and you know, I'm a dad. Are you a dad? I'm not. Okay. Uh, not that you know of, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, no, my daughter is eight and my son is three. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I obviously, well, she comes from a family of females, lots of sisters and, you know, no, no brothers. And so our son, he's all boy, as they say. And she's just been fascinated at how boys like to play and they like to fight and they're aggressive and everything's a shooter or a gun or, you know, where does this come from? And earlier you were talking about this thin veneer of civilization and how being in these very war-torn areas sort of maybe exposed the real primal nature of man. Yeah, I think fair to say. But also too, I mean, I can really quickly change hats. And one of my board members is an amazing woman named Judy Rubin. And she was 
an early cast member in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. She was the art lady. And this is wow, still one of black so and cool. white. I grew up watching Mr. Yeah. Rogers. That's amazing. But so I always kind of go back to the often used Mr. Rogers quote that I'm paraphrasing, but the whole idea that when something bad happens, you look for the people doing good or the rescuers and that kind of thing. It's the same thing in war zones. I mean, it's as easy as it could be to get really cynical and just say, oh man, he, man, he's doomed. We're never going to make it. This is it. You do also see the giant amount of people from international everywhere and they're trying to help and trying to do good. So on the one hand, you get the primal, you get the, you know, life is cheap and you take the wrong corner or the wrong whatever and you're dead. But then also there are all these people who are just trying so damn hard to retain humanity and keep this thing going. So, yeah. You find hope in these areas too. And that's, yeah. and I agree with you. I mean, it's, uh, if you're truly looking, you can see yeah. where there's the light and the hope and the love and the beauty. That's not to say, I mean, it still is devastating. And I've experienced this a few times as, as, as I've worked with this amazing art therapist named Mira Saad out of Beirut. And we both, you know, compare and contrast notes, obviously about our own personal experiences as well as the work stuff. And both she and I have shared with each other that the first day that we're there and doing interviews with the kids, each of us will separately go back to where we're staying and ball, just absolutely break down and break apart. And that's the last time. And it's for whatever reason, after that, you're kind of inoculated and you move forward and it doesn't affect you so much. But you really do see the worst the worst in people is what is being done to these kids. So, yeah, it's hard to see and it's hard to make you know. In some of these areas, and I may be getting into deep water here talking about things I don't really understand, so forgive me and correct me, but I'm guessing many of these areas that you might be traveling in are obviously very conservative, very fundamentalist. To the extent that your toys are Western, to the extent that your toys are, I don't know, evil, dare I say, to use a broad term that often, you know, it's hard to know what you mean. But anyway, <laughs> how has religion in the areas that you work impacted your work and influenced how you have to work? I mean, it depends on the place, but it's become more of a concern in a good way, I'd say, as time has gone on. Really, I mean, the toys I use for the project are all local. Always. So they're always sourced locally. And so you don't get that same kind of, it's hard to have someone say, oh, these toys are evil, they're Western or whatever. There's some of that, but it's more like concerns like Peppa Pig toys are everywhere and being so desperate for civilian characters to reenact some of the kids' accounts. I had bought some Peppa Pig characters and thought, oh, that, yeah, that can be the little girl. And, da, da, da. and someone pointed out, like, no, 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 she's Muslim. You cannot oh. use Peppa Pig. You can't. Right. And it was this whole, like, oh, God, of course. Didn't yeah. see that coming, did you? Yeah, you just feel like an idiot. <laughs> but early, early on, my very first trip, 2011, East Jerusalem, working with Palestinian kids, I got kind of a crash course on the sensitivities, and I thought I was better about it. Clearly, Peppa Pig proved otherwise. But on that first trip, I was able to work with at the Spafford Children's Center and with an existing psychosocial program, which is really the ideal, to go in, work with kids who are already getting help, and you can integrate what or I integrate what I'm doing into their recovery. And so went in, did the interviews, you know, my first ones, got all these accounts, and this one girl had drawn herself, you know, holding a Palestinian flag, and it was sort of this hope for the future. And I decided I'd do a little bit of artistic license and show her current reality. So I found a little Playmobile figure and a Palestinian flag and went to one of the main checkpoints from East Jerusalem to Ramallah, big famous mural of Yasser Arafat and, and kind of put it with that. 
and then came back and showed the girl and working with the people, the staff at Spafford and who were translating, she hated it. She hated the photo, hated everything I did, was so upset. I was kind of, I said, okay, I took a little license. I showed her reality. I felt really bad. Maybe it was too much. She said, no, 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 that's not it. And finally, finally, she sure sheepishly admitted that in the two weeks between when she'd done the drawing and done the interview and when I'd done the photo and shown it to her, she'd had her birthday. And it was an important birthday. She started wearing her headscarf. And so in her mind, this character, this toy was her. And she was deeply ashamed and deeply embarrassed that the toy was not wearing a headscarf. So in my defense, in the drawing, there was no headscarf. The girl I interviewed her wasn't wearing a headscarf. So at no point did I think I need to respect that. But it taught me to be a lot more sensitive to that kind of stuff and also realize how much the kids really identify with these characters or these toys that I've chosen. And I got to really be careful about it. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, I totally get how you felt in the moment, but it's also such a powerful, beautiful story because I mean, clearly you learned, you grew, you understood that she had evolved, changed, reached this life milestone. And so, yeah, she wasn't that person anymore, was she? And you know, that happens, we change. So what year was it when you went to your first war zone and shot your first body of work with war toys? So 2011 was the first trip and that was East Jerusalem. And I wouldn't call it a war zone. It's a conflict area for sure. Okay. 2012 was Gaza. And that was my first proper war, okay. war zone. More specifically, in what year did you first work with your first child? That would have been 2011. 2011. And, okay. Now, have you had a chance to circle back with that child? Do you ever get a chance to sort of circle back with these children and see how they're doing? You know, seldom. Seldom. Yeah. yeah. And East Jerusalem, since it was, again, existing psychosocial program and kids that were enrolled in this, it's easier to track them down mm-hmm. uh, and to keep tabs on them. I haven't in some years now because they're all adults at this point, strangely enough. But another thing I say often, especially in the proper war zones and refugee camps and IDP camps, internally displaced people camps, it's so incredibly hard to find the same kid twice. And a story to illustrate that, in 2017, Mira and I worked with this girl in a camp for people displaced from Mosul, and she shared a story that just devastated us both. It was her whole family had been killed. Uh, She went to her grandmother's, came back, her whole family had been slaughtered by ISIS. And she made drawings that showed exactly where each one had been shot. And so even though she's sharing all this, it's just gutting, absolutely gutting. Mira, being the talented art therapist that she is, was able to bring her, as well as the rest of the group, kind of out of that mode. So she carefully brings them into sharing and then brings them out so that we're not leaving them triggered. We're not exploiting them, honestly, is the, the easiest way to put it. And so at the end of the session, after everything, you know, the girl is waving and smiling and happy and all this stuff. And, you know, when Mira kind of innocently asked everyone what do they want to be when they grow up, this girl said, I want to be Mira. I want to be you. And it's just like, oh, God. I mean, it just, you know, instantly pulls at the heartstrings and it's hard not to really be connected to her. And so when we came back in 2018, we tried to find the same girl just to check on her, see how she's doing and couldn't find her. Absolutely couldn't find her, went through the NGO, went through the camp administration, folks at the UN, everything. And the best we got was, oh, she's back in Mosul with her parents. We said, well, no, that can't be right because her parents are dead. And then we thought, oh, God, was she lying? And that happens sometimes. And as Mira puts it, it's kids expressing their emotional truth. But we were, we still were like, I, 
No, that didn't feel like an exaggeration or anything. So cut to the next day when we were doing interviews at an entirely different camp, pretty far from where she had been, she shows up to the session just randomly. And this is, <laughs> it's just Florida's both. And it's a year later and she looked different enough that I wasn't positive at first, but Mira was like, no, no, that's her. I'm positive. And she got a moment to talk to her. And it turns out that we, Mira and I were the only people that she had told that her parents were dead. And she told us because she wanted the truth to be known. She was with her aunt and uncle who had adopted her, so to speak, but the bureaucracy being such, they just told her when that she's her kid because they were afraid she'd get taken away or something would happen. You know, war zones being chaotic, it's just, it's easy to do that kind of stuff. And so she had blended back in and there you have it. So point is, even when we're trying as hard as we can to track down the same kid, it's almost impossible in a lot of situations. So I wish we could do it more. I wish there were ways to keep tabs, but we don't have that kind of resources or infrastructure yet. Now, what kind of gear are you using? Are you shooting film? Are you shooting digital? I shoot all digital. I was forced over from film back in like 99, 2000. I was at Mattel. Okay. You say forced. What, what do you mean forced? What well, forced I, you know, I went through art school and I learned photography back when film was yeah. it. And I, at Parsons, was we were the first class to be forced to take Photoshop and actually predating Photoshop, Kodak Premiere and that whole system. And I led a student revolt against it which the woman, Michelle Bogri, who's no longer chair of the department, but we're still friends. I'll talk to her once in a while. She won't let me forget it. It's like, oh, how'd that work out for you? Like, well, just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so yeah, so I was resistant to digital for a long time. I knew Photoshop because I had to learn Photoshop, which was very valuable when I got out of school, but I still was shooting film and at Mattel, you know, when they had the budgets to buy at the time, you know, the $30,000 six megapixel oh my god six megapixel camera that is when i finally went over to that so but yeah if i travel with you know really as tight as i can get it small yeah. kit still 50 goddamn pounds but <laughs> all on my back but yeah 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 bad. well in 10 more years it'll be down to 40 pounds <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> something like that <laughs> oh my gosh oh just my time gosh. for me to get older because you know as the years goes on my my body does not like this work <laughs> i mean it's right it's tough. So, yeah. Now, do you travel with an assistant or are you solo? I am solo. I cannot afford to travel with an assistant. I would love to do that. But since this is self-financed on teeny yeah. tiny budgets, that's just what it is. I hire local. I've been really lucky to find some great local translators, fixers, assistants, whatever you want to call them, who have A, kept me from getting killed and, and B, just help in any, in any number of ways. Mm-hmm. Now, the lessons you've learned and, you know, you literally have been in these life-threatening situations and most Americans have never been in a life-threatening situation, which is also part of why my theory, why a global pandemic and quarantining and COVID is so hard and scary because most people have never known real struggle or real adversity. Mm-hmm. So it's hard and this is their first real test. So the lessons you've learned, the things you've seen, how have they helped you during this COVID pandemic? I very quickly realized where things were going, also where they could go. I didn't know, but it was that instinct of like, I need more food and some more water. I'm going to get not the crazy amounts of toilet paper people did, but, you know, I stocked up early on. Yeah. And kind of just went into that sort of war zone mode of like, okay, if I can't leave my house for two weeks, three weeks, six weeks, whatever it is, what am I going to need? And so pretty easy to have a shopping list and, and get all that. 
I've noticed too among with myself and other people who've worked in those kinds of places, we tend to be this rash generalization, but I've noticed it enough to I think be true. We are a little more edgy or on edge, I should say, about the election and about the transitions of power and that kind of stuff and, and the real potential for violence and unrest because it is much more normal in those places. And that's another thing too. Talking, I got a great education talking to Syrian refugees in Lebanon early on, like 2014 and 2016, talking to folks, especially in 2014, who were middle class, you know, living in Aleppo, doctors, lawyers, whatever. And, you know, kids went to private schools, very Western, not what most people think of when you think of refugees, but that's the reality is much different. But this one guy was saying, from his point of view, everything was fine until one day it wasn't. And they thought, oh, it will never happen here. Everything's fine. Everything's great. And then just one day, you know, a switch got flipped and they're in the middle of a war. And they, like a lot of their neighbors, he had neighbors who had moved to Europe or wherever, like maybe the year before or something. And he remembered thinking, God, what? they're so stupid. Why are they doing this? This is going to be fine. This is going to get blown up. This is blown out of proportion. It's going to blow over. It's going to be great. And then a year later and being forced to throw what he can into the car and leave the family with all their possessions and cross the board in Lebanon, he just regrets not having left sooner and done it in a controlled way. And as he said, when Europe still welcomed us, <laughs> you know, when the, his neighbors are in Germany and have EU citizenship and are being taken care of, and he's in this shitty camp in the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon. So the takeaway was, you don't know when it's going to happen. It can just change on a heartbeat and get out sooner when in doubt. Yeah, I still have hope that the U.S. is not going to go down that road, but I'm certainly wary and more wary than I think folks who haven't been in those types of environments would be. Well, how have you been using this found time in 2020? It really has been all about that war photographer project. When it became clear, we had actually planned on not being in the field until this summer at the earliest because Mira stopped. She had her first baby. Oh, so, yeah. And so, yeah, we had planned kind of, you know, to stop things no later than, let's say, late February. And even then that was kind of a little much. And when things start happening, we figured out real quick. So I'd already points. I'd already kind of like, well, I'm going to be home for a while. So let's get some stuff to work on. So yeah, it's been all about that. And it's sculptors and prototypes and trying to find the support network and the funding. Oh God, no one told me how much effort an executive director of a 501c3 has to spend fundraising. So not yes. my to. Yes. You might as well be a politician. Uh, Pretty much. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've served on a couple of boards myself and it's, yeah, it's all about the fundraising. And of course it is. The challenge of course, is that there are so many important good causes. Right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And up until very recently, when things would come up, I would steer donations to the organizations with whom I worked in the field, thinking that was the best way to really to do good and do more of a direct impact. Now with the nonprofit and the programs that we're doing, I have to sort of switch gears and become a little more like, no, 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 give to us, please. <laughs> That's a weird feeling. It's still admittedly. Well, yeah, I'm the same way. I mean, I, I don't want to have to ask for money. I want to be self-sufficient, right? And it's awkward, but it's necessary. And rule number one is you have to believe in the cause and you do, right? Yes, so absolutely. that integrity there. Well, I was going to save this for the end, but because we're kind of on the topic now, for our listeners who do want to support you and donate, 
Where do they go? How can they? And by the way, what does a dollar buy you? So if they somebody donates a hundred dollars, like mm-hmm. what can? How far does that get you? Absolutely, wartoys.org. Really easy to remember. There's a donate button or donate link in the top right. Hugely appreciate anyone that wants to support us. Hundred dollars at this point. Where we're at. So the war photographer project being the focus and knowing we can't work in the field. So I'm not even dog earing any money for that. Each prototype is about $2,000. We're committed to no fewer than four photojournalists for the first series. We'd like to do six. And the reason is we want recognizable faces. We're trying to build relationships with, or actually are working on very well, building relationships with actual photojournalists. Some are very well known and are trying to directly link it to them. Say this is, you know, so-and-so's action figure. With or without that, though, we've committed to doing different genders, different races, and poses that are very obviously make them civilians, which can be very hard at that small scale. So yeah, $2,000 per prototype. And then eventually the big dollar thing that we're gearing up for is the actual molds to make the toys. And the plan is simply to give the molds to these generic toy makers, to you know whomever is supplying most of the market, and there's really just two or three to choose from. Yeah, we're going to hand it to them. We're going to give them our own artwork, our own branding materials, all that kind of stuff, and just say, look, go sell it. Just go sell it. The money's yours. We just want to see these toys out there in the field. And looking at the sales figures, it's really crazy when I realized this. If we can influence one half of 1% of the generic action figures coming out of China per year, that's 700,000 kids. And one that's half of one percent. One half of one percent. That's seven hundred thousand kids, and that's a low bar that I've set. So, and that's for the cost of you know two thousand dollars a prototype, and then a mold, and then some other you know other costs in there. But it is a drop in the bucket to reach a zillion kids. And why no one else has thought of this, and, and why no one else is doing it, I don't know. But I'm really glad to be in a position to do this. For sure, for sure. That's incredible. Seven hundred thousand kids point that's a half of one percent and that's just the generic toys coming out of china yeah and that doesn't that we're not looking at the mattels and the hasbros and the higher end the legos right 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 right, right. cheap old branded stuff yeah Yeah. branded expensive stuff right wow i know you won't mind this let's shout out to some of these important photojournalists that you want to dare i say honor with these figures who are these people let's talk about them let's honor them for a few minutes yeah, no, we've had great conversations with working photojournalists or the estates of working photojournalists. Sadly enough, a lot of these folks have been killed. People like Chris Hondros, who died in 2014 in Libya. There's a great documentary on Netflix simply called Hondros that you know really goes more into his life and his legacy. And I think what always impressed me so much about him, A, his work was amazing. B, he was really good at fostering young photographers, young photojournalists, mm-hmm. and showing them the ropes out in the field. And I think there are a lot of people out there now who credit him strongly for giving them, you know, the direction and the way to work safely and that kind of stuff. Another great thing, and you'll see this if you watch the documentary, I don't want to ruin anything, but he's a couple people that he's photographed that ended up in his very famous photos. He went back later on, found them and supported them going mm-hmm. to school earning degrees. This is yeah. one photograph, this very famous one he did of this guy. I don't remember which country, African country holding an RPG. He had just fired and he's jumping in the air. It's a vertical shot. It's beautiful. And he found that guy. And I think the guy's an accountant now because of Chris and because of what Chris did. So, I mean, that it just above and beyond talk about an amazing role model. Yeah. 
and then as far as women, there are so many amazing women. There's people like Lindsay Adero, Andrea Bruce. We've been talking to the state of Dickie Chappelle, and she was faux journalist killed in Vietnam. I could have my facts wrong here, but I believe she's the first American faux journalist killed in conflict. But she got her start or kind of earned her chops, as it were, by talking her way on to Iwo Jima uh, mm. during the assault. And she recounted later to, I don't know if this was a press thing or talking to a friend or whatever, but it made into an article where she said it was a really intense experience and amazing, but she just couldn't deal with all the mosquitoes. And it's a volcanic island. There aren't any mosquitoes. Those were bullets whizzing by her head the whole time. And, and that, I get it. Again, having been shot at, I get it because it's just not real. It's not real. But anyway, she was, you know, one of these sort of indestructible pioneers who really forged her own path and was a force of nature. And when she was killed, the Marines loved her so much, they gave her an honor guard at her funeral. Mm. They made her an honorary Marine some years later. But, you know, we're in a time when photojournalism, photojournalists and the press are so vilified. It's really great to see someone who was still out there doing the work on the front lines, but so loved by the people that she was working with that they honor her in that way. I think that's really amazing. But yeah, there are so many men and women out there now who are just doing amazing work. And it's so undervalued right now. And it breaks my heart. And anything we can do to lift them up, to give them more of their due, to show the importance of the work they do. I mean, there's been a photographer on every battlefield since the Crimean War, literally. Next week, I'm going to announce the War Photographer Project publicly. I'm going to do it by showing the last mass market produced war photographer figure. And I'll show it to you since you're on camera now, but it's a 1937 Barclay manufacturing sold at five and dime stores and Woolworths and that sort of thing. Right. There hasn't been one made again since like 1937. And it seems goofy that photojournalists are a part of war. They are on battlefields. Why not give kids that option of having that place? They're, it's not just us and them fighting. Yeah. Yeah. There's the logic anyway. Well, and again, getting back to the point you were making in terms of the media and the press and photographers being vilified, you know, my perception of wartime journalists and photographers over World War II or Vietnam, what have you, I could be wrong, but my perception is that if you had that press label on you, you were generally, you weren't safe, but you were safer and you were respected or at least respectable. <laughs> and it does seem from my perspective and what I've heard that that has changed a lot, that just because you are a press or a photographer now or whatever, you're fair game in a war zone. I mean, how do we put that genie back in the bottle? Is that ever going to be fixed? I don't know if it ever will be. I think the whole world has gotten more media savvy and has gotten a much higher understanding of the power of controlling a narrative. So I think that's why those folks are targeted and it sucks. And I wish I knew what could change that and could get them out of the crosshairs a little more, but yeah, they are viewed too much as a threat by too many people in power. And as long as that's the case, they're always going to be in the crosshairs. Yeah. No, it's a real shame. It's a shame that, I mean, like the training course I did, and also after Chris Andros and Tim Hetherington, they died in the same incident in 2014. There has been a big push within the photojournalism community to get hostile environment first aid training to be certified in that because, and my facts may be wrong on this, but I think the argument is that Chris or Tim or both could have potentially been saved had folks had proper first aid training. And I don't know if that's true at all. I wasn't there, but 
I do know that that training is a standard now and expected now. And it's a shame that is the standard. But yeah, photojournalists just, they need to know this stuff now. Yeah. I mean, it's no guarantee, certainly, right? But it is, yet yeah, it gives you a skill, a tool, a chance to maybe help, right? So that's smart. That's smart. Well, shifting gears a little bit, does the phrase designer con mean anything to you? <laughs> it does. God, it's designer con, for folks who don't know, is a convention. It was in Pasadena and it was, I guess still is, focused on the designer toy, art toy movement, what you want to call it. It's funny. DesignerCon first launched right around the time that I think my first book came out and I was kind of stepping back from art toys. The, the financial collapse of 2008 really took out its heart. And I think it was only starting to recover earlier this year before COVID. So who knows now? But yeah, I mean, DesignerCon is awesome. And it's grown to this massive event down now down in Anaheim, you know, at least when COVID isn't around. And it's so great to see where it's gone and what's happening with it. And I wish I had been more involved with all of them from the beginning, but I just, I was on war toys and distracted. So yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, I just, I mentioned it because uh, Ben Goreski is a good friend and uh, more to the point decon was just this last weekend because of course in COVID, you know, they're trying to make lemonade out of the lemons and they did an online virtual thing with pop shop live. And it was a you know different animal altogether, but I thought they did a great job. And I got involved with designer con and we got involved with designer con when it was still in Pasadena and of course, now they're in Anaheim. Uh, and it is amazing to see what Ben and team have built and just the love for the culture because it's just grown exponentially year over year over year because people love toys. Yeah. To give a kind of example or story on how quickly DesignerCon grew, I think I went the first year or second year and it was you know a room in Pasadena and it was really neat and I really enjoyed it. And then I think it kept heading it was kind of around this time every year. And this would have been the time that I was traveling for war toys. And so I just kept missing them. And one year I was home and decided to go and I went and I, you know, walked through the size of what it had been last year and didn't realize there's three other rooms. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Oh, Oh God. Okay. And you know, off I went. And then the oh, wait, there's more and more and more. And the that, there was like a giant line to get in just even in the door. And so I, yeah, it caught me off guard. I, I walked through it. A couple of years ago, this guy named Roy Miles, if you don't know him, you should. He's He calls himself the Ghetto Geppetto. He's one early, early. Roy is a friend. Yeah. Uh, he's Roy is fantastic. So yeah. We walked through, oh, ballpark five years ago now. Yeah. And we were like, uh, God, forget their names, the, the two old guys on the Muppets. And just like talking shit about us, like back in my day, and it was just we were like so grandpa y. <laughs> we're like 40 something people, we're not that old, but it's just at the time it felt like, oh, yeah, I, should, you know, I would never do that. And, which is so bitter about it and funny. And, you know, enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, you back in our day. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't vinyl, it wasn't a toy. And it's just that, yeah, the whole, you're poo pooing resin. And now I've a little more evolved on that. I apologize. But yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, we probably have a lot of friends in common, uh, truth, truth be told. And uh, I was so proud of, you know, Ben. We actually, I wrote up a little review for the blog on Monday morning just because I wanted to shout out because I know that, I mean, for those people who are trying to, you know, compare decon this year versus decon any other you can't i mean it's an absolutely different animal but kudos to ben and the guys for you know adapting to these tough times and you know i think because that energy the thing about 
What I love about Decon, and I don't have the history that you have with Decon. I mean, I think I first went in, oh, heck, I don't even know. Was it 2013 or something? You know, I don't know. It was like one of those years. But the energy, the vibe was just, it was a pure culture. It was just rich with that integrity and that joy that comes with a pure culture. And I was just wallowing in it and basking in it. And I'm not a toy collector necessarily. I have a few toys that I like, but, you know, and I wouldn't call myself a geek on any level in terms of it. But I just, I am a fan and a fanatic of the creativity and just the energy and the goodness that these artists put out. And it's this consolidated, concentrated place and space and locale of all this energy, you know, that's just exuding itself. And so I just like, I remember those for that first year or two, I would just go and wallow in it, walk around and let it just kind of wash over because it is, it is such a special vibe. And then, you know, over the years, just getting involved uh, and getting to know people. And uh, when they moved to Anaheim, I was concerned. I really was. I was like, you know, because to what the question was, to what extent was Pasadena which is, you know, Pasadena, I love the Pasadena vibe, Old Town, and, you know, and like, to what extent was that community feel kind of part and parcel to the overall designer comp vibe? And I think he made the jump, kudos to him, because I have my doubts, but because what it boils down to, it's a, it boils down to the people, the artists and their fans that come around this mutual love for toys, and it just is palpable. It reminds me a lot of... And again, this is me being bitter grandpa, but San Diego Comic-Con back, let's say around 2003, 2004, was just a heyday for the desire toy movement, art toy movement. And it was so magical to be around all that and to have everyone from the community in one spot. And I, you know, as the years went on, Comic-Con became more commercialized and harder for folks to attend. They really lost that vibe and energy. And again, after 2008 and the financial collapse and folks like, Strange Co. and some others just couldn't make it. It really changed the scene for me as well. But no, DesignerCon, I think, is that old energy and is such a pillar. And I think that's why I was seeing the recovery that I was seeing earlier this year or late last year of folks really doing stuff that I was excited about and more excited than I've been in a long time. And now I don't, I'll be curious to see who survives this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Well, in terms of how Ben adapted this weekend, and I wrote this in my little uh, review, it's like, I think hopefully, right, if the artist felt like it was worth their time and energy and Ben ultimately felt like it was worth his time and energy, this Pop Shop Live virtual experience arguably could be a way for them to extend the brand and globally so that maybe the event in Anaheim is once a year, but then six months in, you do the virtual version, right? So we have two events to look forward to. One is real, one is virtual, and yet the artists get more exposure, get more love because that's what artists need. Oh, yes. (laughs) Obviously sales. Yeah. I watch Joe Ledbetter, Mark Nagata, and those kinds of folks are navigating the new system and I got a, a little bit of a laugh with Mark. Mark is a great friend. Mark's actually supporting the War Photographer Project as well. He did packaging artwork, which I will someday be very excited to reveal, but I think he did a whole thing on his first day and didn't realize he had to like turn on his shop or something. <laughs> I was like, Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I didn't see that. And I think Mark, <laughs> Mark and are trying that as well. It just would be like, what do I do though? God, the button. Okay. Yeah. Well, it is an interesting thing because I mean, for those of us who are of a certain age, these newfangled uh, devices can, you know, I guess if you 
to figure them out, you really want to figure them out. And there's part of me that just doesn't want to figure it out. Like I'm an analog guy. <laughs> I mean, oh, a couple of weeks ago or not very long ago, it was something to the effect of Gen Xers are like boomers, except that we can adapt to new technology, but we just don't want to. <laughs> so, and that's kind wow. of it. Just, that's me, a, like, that's fair. Uh, my way works. Why do I got to do this? Come on. <laughs> and I do like real interaction. You know, I'm sorry. This is cool. I'm grateful that we can see each other on the screen like this. It's amazing. Like but boy, that. do I wish you were in my office right now. Way better, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And so what is a typical day as an artist, as a photographer? What's a typical day look like for you? Are you pretty rigorous about your schedule and your workflow and your production? Or are yeah. you sort of, yeah, take yeah, us through a day. Well, it's funny. I get art students write me pretty often for advice or whatever. And I was talking sure. to one, I want to say yesterday, day before, and they kind of were asking the same thing. Like, what, you know, what are you doing a day? How busy are you? And how much do you photograph? And da, da, da. And I said, and this is the truth, even before I you know, started the War Toys nonprofit, it's true. I think 80% of my time is emails, phone calls, administrative stuff, rain making, whatever you want to call it. And maybe 20% is shooting. And it's less than that now, even with COVID and not having much commercial work coming in right now because it just isn't a lot of commercial work. But no, I'm pretty rigid on my schedule as far as, you know, I get up, I answer the emails that need to be answered, put out the fires that need to be put out, and then we'll, you know, have set certain bars for every week, every day as far as applying for grants or building the relationships we need to build. But, and it's funny, I was also saying I view all that as a game sort of this elaborate, getting all the pieces, seeing all the pieces and figuring out how they all fit together. And so I enjoy that. It's not the same as going out in the field and schlepping gear and, and really being in it. And I miss that and look forward to the chances I get for that. But it's these days, it's, you know, one or two trips a year. I hope that changes and I hope the resources do more post COVID. But even then the amount of relationship building, I mean, you're sort of asking that earlier on that transition from, you know, regular guy to war zone guy. And it was just hours and hours and hours of building relationships and networking and research. And it's about the same for that now, uh, for everything I'm trying. Since no one has done this stuff before, there's no path to follow. So we just kind of have to blaze it ourselves. And it takes that much more work. Well, like I like to say, you are one of those artists that are, you're definitely traveling the road less traveled, but you're looking for the path of least resistance. That's dangerous work and exciting and all of that stuff. So I have a couple questions. So in terms of the 501c3 fundraising goal for 2021, ideally, what is that goal of 2021? If you could raise X, then you could fund everything you're doing. For the War Photographer Project, we've set a budget of about 86000 before. I think it could go a little lower than that, maybe. There are a lot of unknowns is the problem. Until we yeah. actually get the prototypes made and are talking with manufacturers and those folks and have real numbers, the mold is the single largest item. And it could be 30000 It could be 40000 It could be 55000 We won't know. Right, right, right. But I kind of averaged out thinking, all right, 40 should do it. So with that, 86 gets us there. Mm-hmm. Now you start adding in the other projects and programs that we're developing pre-COVID. And that figure goes up significantly. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, 80, 85 is about my target right now. But right, right. like there are programs that uh, there's one that we had developed and was starting to gain momentum before all this started. We were working with some academic institutions, art therapy programs, that sort of thing, and developing training programs for caregivers in the field. And this has been done by a few other NGOs before. They'll go in and like for a weekend, they'll teach NGO workers some expressive therapy based type stuff. And it's fine. 
But we wanted to do a certificate program and actually have mentoring and monitoring and really train these folks properly so that after we leave a given place, we know the kids are still going to be taken care of, that the caregivers are equipped and can help them process their trauma and their emotions and do more direct good. Because what happened too often was we'd come in, we'd do these sessions, and you'd see immediate results in the kids, immediate improvements even from one session, and then we'd go away. That's it. And the NGOs don't have the resources. The UN doesn't have the resources. Psychosocial programs, they exist, and they're very good, but they're rare because you want to house them and feed them and keep them warm. And obviously, those are the more important things. And when resources are stretched, those things get left behind. So we're trying to fill in that gap. So that's a whole the program. That's a much higher price tag to answer your question. And then there's the continuing advocacy work, the continuing work of just being in the field and gathering these stories and telling these stories. And it is a long-time goal to capture as much of that as I can from as many different places as possible to do a sampling of war and conflict from a humanist point of view, not a Middle East or whatever. I don't want tied to any one region. That is important and you get those individual stories, but to compare and contrast a kid in Gaza City compared to a kid in South Chicago. I mean, obviously, Gaza is an open-air prison. It's horrible. So it's hard to really compare. But I bet you'll find more commonality and experiences and fears than anything else. And looking at in that context, I think is really important. So anyway, I don't have a price figure on that. It's as much money as I have, I will go off and I'll, I'll spend on those trips and all those programs. Well, I ask because I think it's important to, for people to understand because who knows who's listening, right, in terms of their socioeconomic status. But at the end of the day, $86,000 is a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money. You know, and I want people to understand that these goals are achievable and that, you know, that their dollar does really matter. Because at the end of the day, we're not trying to raise $86 million, We're trying to raise 86000 and that's very doable. I've also put in the context of that 86000 gets us minimum 700,000 kids per yes. year. Yes. And that, again, I think is a really conservative number. It's probably going to be much higher than that. Yeah, and do the math. How many pennies per kid is that? I mean, it's just a bucket. And if this program is successful, which I believe it will be, and to have the ability to really put in better designs for kids at that economic level, I think is so important. Because the stuff they're getting, it's not terrible. I mean, it's not great, but it doesn't have the same research an intention behind the toys you'd find from Mattel or Hasbro who have this real incentive to have high value educational. And even if they are more edgy and glorifying things that maybe aren't the most positive, there is that positive aspect to it. And I think kids at every economic level deserve that same type of toy and access to it. So I think we can do a lot of good because I mean, being dialed into all the toy geeks of the world, you know, there's no shortage of talent and no shortage of folks who want to contribute to a program like this and would give their designs or their times or their talent or whatever it is to see these toys permeate and do some good. A little bit of a sidebar, but Mira has been working with Sesame Street and Sesame Workshop and the International Rescue Committee on Alan Sim Sim. If you don't know what that is, go look it up. It's this brilliant program where Sesame Street, with the backing from, I believe, MacArthur Foundation and Lego or Ikea, and I should know this, I think it may be both at this point, they got funding to build programs and programming specifically for war-affected children in the Middle East and North Africa. 
And Mira was brought in to act as a, a consultant for the emotional content for of the characters, the scripts, educational programs, all that stuff. But it's ensuring the very specific emotional needs of these kids are being met. And I love sort of that synergy of sort of the art therapy and the stuff that we've been doing going in to this more mainstream stuff and to having that larger impact. But one of the things that Mira learned through all this, or I don't know if she learned it so much as she taught me and taught the folks assess me that one of the biggest things that kids affected by war and trauma, the biggest things that they're missing and the biggest strength or biggest thing you can do to help them isn't let's process your trauma. It's let's teach you basic emotional literacy. How do you feel? I don't know. Well, are you happy or you sad? I don't know. And so you actually have to teach these kids, this is happy, this is sad, this is angry. It's identifying the emotions, you know, first the basic emotions, and then you get a little more complex and a little more complex and a little more complex. But it's developing that language to even talk about what they're feeling and understand what they're feeling. Because most of them don't. And in these survival situations, who cares how you feel, honestly? What's striking me about what you're saying is that they might be alive physically, but they're dead emotionally. Right. They're dead on the inside. It's a survival mechanism. It's a luxury to they don't have the luxury of thinking about how they feel. They're just trying to get through. Right. Exactly. And so the the point of that story was to say, I think there are real opportunities in the generic toy industry and generic toy trade to make toys that teach those types of things as an inherent play pattern Mm -hmm. and to get that into the market and distributed cheaply, effectively everywhere. So that type of stuff is where I could see us really doing some good and steering the industry in a way that helps kids and again, helps them make money. I think this, our project doesn't work if, I mean, I wish we had all the money in the world and we can make the best toys, perfect toys and get them distributed everywhere, but we don't and we never will. And I, even early on, I earned a Fulbright, went to Hong Kong and researched all this stuff before developing the War Toys Nonprofit and all that. And the resistance I ran to from others in the mainstream toy industry was, oh, we can make this perfect toys for kids in war zones and they can serve emotional needs and they'll be great. And I said, yeah, that's, I'm all for that. I love that. But who's going to pay for it? Who's going to keep paying for it? And we can go off and make 10,000 toys, even 100,000 toys. And that's going to feel real good, but it's a PR move. You're really not making an impact. And so until you can get to the mass market scale, or conversely have a bottomless amount of money where you can go distribute everywhere, is kind of choose your path. And I've chosen the path that these toys will not be perfect. They will not you know, serve every emotional need as well as something that would be custom built, but the market supports it and the market distributes it. And that's a huge win, huge win. To what extent have you been able to film and create video of the work that you do in active conflict areas? Pretty much. We document all the interview sessions with the kids. Right, right. And that's more from the standpoint of so much is happening so fast you can't absorb it all. And so I'll review the sessions after the fact and we'll watch it with Mira and we'll both say, oh, no, that was she said this and then she was talking about this. And we'll look. So the process is film everything in the sessions immediately after the sessions. Mira will go through the drawings one by one while I'm filming and say, this is so-and-so, this is what happened to them, blah, 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 and all the elements in the drawing. And then once we get back to you know, home base or whatever, we'll go through it again with the footage, and she'll say, oh, no, 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 I'm wrong, that was this. And, and so it's really part of the process. I've also got a habit of just filming everything to film everything. There has been talk over the years, and I've been down this road a few times, of doing a documentary. Right, right. And 
I can't say who, but I'll say someone has the option. Good. Uh, for Good. To do doc and, because that's why I was asking. I, you know, I want to see this documentary. No, and I do too. It's funny. I went down this road once, really, like the very first trip, you know, I filmed way more thinking it was going to be a doc and was working with some folks and really enjoyed working with them. And they produced uh, a proof of concept trailer, which you Google, you'll find it out there. It's still mm -hmm. there. But I wasn't happy with it and ultimately walked away because it, it felt too much like a portrait of the artist at work and that kind of thing. And I get that you've got to build a story around what I'm doing. I'm the narrative structure. I get that. I don't want to be a character. I don't want to be on camera. I hate it, frankly, <laughs> a lot. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, but I get it. And I'll do it because I get, you know, the power it, that it has and what it can achieve. So, but anyway, this first version was just, to me, too heavily skewed toward, here's this guy, I'm sort of white savior and everything about it. Yeah, no, 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 that's all wrong. And all that. And it was just terrible. So, no, but I'm really confident in the folks I'm working with now. And Great. I think. Because it I, is about the kids. It's not about yeah. you. About oh, the kids. Yeah. I'm a vehicle to tell story. <laughs> I get that. And I, you yeah. know, I could be interesting and whatever, but if you're not telling the, the thing about the kids and it's a disservice and my ego doesn't need it. Yeah. Yeah. In LA, imagine that a healthy ego. Yeah, that was weird. Where in LA are you? I'm in West Hollywood. I think I'm like spitting distance from your office up on Sunset. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm actually at home today at Encino, but uh, I was wondering, so is your studio there in WeHo as well? Yeah. No, I since I work on location exclusively, I don't have oh, a yeah. studio. Okay. I thought you had a... All right. So when you do commercial work for the toy that you go to their spot or whatever it is. I work with this... It's been a while now. Julie Bennett, great producer, owns a studio, mm -hmm. that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Brian McCarty, you are an amazing soul, dude. I'm Thank so you. honored to uh, connect with you and talk about your important work. I uh, am going to tell you right now that I am personally going to make a donation to your work because oh, I you. believe in it so much. And I hope our listeners do as well. Guys, anything, 5 10 15 20 $25, come on, come off a Happy Meal, do something. Just, you know, Don't buy Starbucks for a few days. Fund this work. This is important stuff. Brian, before we sign off, and you've been so generous with your time, you know, this is so great. I, I We could easily do this for another hour. Oh, yeah. Tell our listeners where they can find you and your social handles, all that good stuff. Sure. Website, wartoys.org is the easiest. I also have brianmccarty.com for my commercial and personal work. On social media, Instagram is Brian McCarty or War Toys Project, I believe. I'm not so awesome at posting on the War Toys Project just yet. I'm still getting used to that. But yeah, those are the main accounts. I mean, there's Twitter and Facebook and whatever, but I'm not as good with Twitter and Facebook. So again, this is a Gen X thing. Like, I don't it give is. a shit. Yes. <laughs> and we're like, and you keep hearing these new platforms. You're like, I don't want to do a new platform. And yeah, I've got friends who are into TikTok, I at least conceptually understand it better than I did. But for a long time, I'm like, ah, oh, back in my day, we had MySpace. <laughs> Well, you know. here's the thing. Who has the time for this shit, man? I mean, yeah. I'm. It, uh, oof, God bless them. You know, I, 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 I'm not judging. I'm just saying. I'm just, you know what? I'm older. I've got gray hair. I've earned the fucking gray hair. I'm going to own it. <laughs> That's right. I was literally saying that today to somebody. I'm like, I earned this. I had this gray hair. I'm not going to cover it. I'm proud of this shit. These are my battle scars right here, these gray hairs. You know? really? I mean, I've reached the age where. I think, you know, MTV is now the MTV, and that's fine. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> you have to get it, right? Oh, man. So what is your evening look like tonight? What are you going to be working on? I have a million emails to reply to, which is kind of yes. normal. I think yes. I just sort of, I've got almost a form letter apology. Like, I'm sorry, Timmy's long to reply. 
Yeah, well, it is 2020, as you reminded me earlier for being a little negligent in my communication. So I appreciate your empathy and understanding during these tough times. But Brian, while I have you, I want to ask you a big favor. Will you come back and talk to us again uh, down the road a bit? I can look back and go, oh, I was so naive. I was thinking all these things. God, let me tell you. Or we'll celebrate the success. Could go either way. Good deal. Well, I do look forward to you coming back and checking in and updating us. We're going to be tracking and watching and supporting. And again, man, big ups, big love. Keep up the great work. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me here. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at NotRealArtWorld. If you're an artist, be sure to apply for our 2021 artist grant at NotRealArt.com. Sourdough, out.